here at 1020, Sunday morning, the 24th. So I guess that makes the text this morning, the idea of the earth coming to an end based on biblical codes, it makes our text this morning even that much more pressing. For each of us must wrestle with this text that is before us. Interesting because in light of the thought of the visible kingdom descending, again, what the Lord's will is and what his perfect work is, I, I, we don't know. Perhaps it is this evening. I, I, I mean, we, we don't know. That's the, the, the jest at the 23rd being the date we do know. No, no, we don't. And everyone here, I trust, embraces the idea that, that, that is uh, roundabout and backwards to be pursuing biblical codes that are secret, like Illuminati speech in Holy Scripture. This is revelatory. It can be grasped. It is to teach and instruct, not to hide in secret codes where certain people with certain hermeneutics begin to predict and run the rest of our lives. The text is knowable. And critically, what's knowable about the text this morning is Jesus is speaking about one's fitness for the kingdom that is to come. Perhaps not on the 23rd, But it is still a pressing matter, for we definitely don't know when he will descend and return. We know in Acts 1, as we spoke just briefly last week, why do you stand here staring up into the heavens? This Jesus who has ascended will also in like manner descend. So it is a pressing matter that we grasp when he does descend, are we fit citizens? of that visible kingdom, or are we not? The text this morning presses us into this question, and we need to wrestle with it and make the decision. Let me show you how, just briefly by introduction. Look at verse 9. So we covered 18, 1 through 8 last week, and now jumping into verse 9, you notice how Luke is writing about this episode where Jesus is teaching the crowds, those who are gathering. In verse 9, he says, he also told this parable. So, again, the idea that, in other words, Jesus is speaking this particular parable about this tax collector and this Pharisee in light of his previous teaching regarding the coming of the kingdom. Why? Because he is describing true citizenship. None of us can escape this text this morning. This is why he also told this parable in the context of talking about the coming and the descending of the future kingdom. It is coming. Don't stand here and stare up at the sky. This Jesus who ascended will also descend. He is coming. And when he comes, let me tell you a parable about it. Um, All right, there were two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Why are we talking about these two men? Well, again, I'm talking about it in light of the coming kingdom. Why? Because one of these men is fit for the kingdom. And one of them isn't. So he is speaking of true citizenship here with the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee to give us these two polarizing figures of the passage two contrasting character types. And I I, I want us to stick with this idea of character types. 
because again, it's a parable. So we're not jumping into a specific Pharisee he had in mind, like that guy right there. And then this tax collector, that guy right there, and everybody peers over and sees him and then peers over and sees him. He's speaking of character types. It's a parable. There is an emerging type of person that he is speaking to. And then he's speaking of another type of person. Let me show you how. Again, jump just briefly into the passage. Verse 9. He also, in speaking about the kingdom and its descent, its return, his coming, at the conclusion of very difficult days of this age, he also fit this parable into the discussion. He told this parable to some people. And particularly of this type. The type who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That type of person, that type of character. And and then this sense of self-righteousness, they then have a a behavior that manifests itself very typically. They have contempt for everybody else. Why do they have contempt for someone other than themselves? Well, because they see themselves as the pinnacle of virtue. Not a virtue bestowed upon them, a virtue achieved. Therefore, the very natural psychological response is to have contempt for everybody else. So there is some people there who our Lord knows have this sin, have this vice, this character type. And so he is speaking directly to them. Again, he is addressing a broadly held view by many religious people. Let me draw a nuance here as you think of it in verse 9 again. Notice how the language is working with a little bit of nuance. Verse 9, let's take a brief look. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then the natural behavior, as I said, they treat others with contempt because they lack this sense of self-righteousness. But notice how they're trusting in themselves, that they themselves were righteous, by an unnuanced and uncritical review of themselves, their behaviors, and their actions. So, and this particularly includes their view of their own faith. And you'll see this. It's not that they're unbelieving that I achieve righteousness and I'll achieve eternity all upon my own merits. That's not necessarily the case because as you'll see in just a moment, the Pharisee begins his prayer with, God, I thank you. Do you see the nuance there? So apparently there's folks there who some people gathered who find themselves to be, hmm, how would I evaluate myself? Righteously. Including my sense of belief in God. I find myself to be very righteous. I find myself to be very virtuous. It's, in other words, religious people attached perhaps even to the church who have a very uncritical view of their own behaviors, their own actions, and indeed, even their own sense of faith. 
in God. A question that begins to emerge as we'll walk through the text is, are you coming to Christ through faith that is alone? Or are you coming to Christ with a faith plus additional numerical achievements that you would argue for the sense of being received? There are some people there who trusted in themselves that they themselves are righteous. Well, why are they trusting in themselves that they themselves are righteous? Because they're reviewing themselves, and they review themselves very charitably. We all do. So the passage this morning is calling us to a much more critical review of our own sense of righteousness, to be more honest about our own motivations, to be more honest about our own sense of faith, to be more honest about our own sense of argumentation as to why we're kind of at least better than our neighbor. Because this text puts you before the Lord. So now your evaluation of righteousness isn't a relative righteousness to your neighbor. It is a righteousness before God. We could all evaluate our own sense of righteousness against one another. I can tell you right now, I would be better than all of you. So, I don't know where you guys want to go from there. Sure, and then who else would be like, no, 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 I'm better than everyone. All right, great, let's get all our reviews out on the table. But see, in the end, it doesn't matter. You will not be before your neighbor arguing for justification. You will be before God. That is not a relative righteousness. It is an absolute essence. So the text begins then this way. For our sake, for each of us this morning, to be clear as we move forward in the text, because it's a parable and it's explaining two character types, you do not have to belong to the class of Pharisees in order to share pharisaical way of life. It's a type of person. Let's jump right into the passage then this morning as each of us honestly and critically reviews our faith before the Lord. Verse again, 9 and 10. He also, in the midst of speaking of the kingdom, told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves as they reviewed themselves and they found themselves to be rather righteous. And they then treated others with contempt. How will I address this issue? I know, I will tell them a parable. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Okay, so we have the two character types emerging now in direct address. How can I help people evaluate their faith with greater nuance, a greater sense of humility, a greater sense of transparency about who they think they themselves are? I tell you, I know who I am. I reviewed it, and I found myself to be righteous. Okay, I need to help you see in humility who you really are. Okay, so two men. Let me tell it to you like this. Two men, a tax collector and a Pharisee, 
went up to Jerusalem to the temple to offer daily prayer. That's the context of what we're dealing with in verse 10. You see, again, two men went up into the temple. Where is the temple located but in Jerusalem, the center of religious life? And so these two men go up to the same temple complex to begin offering daily prayer. In in the context, you'd have an a.m. early prayer, you'd have a mid-afternoon prayer, and kind of a pre-evening, just about emerging into the evening hours prayer time. These men, at some point in this prayer setting, went up to the same temple to offer prayers to God. Pretty standard kind of religious um, cadence through your day. These two men went up. If we were to put it into the context that we are in this morning, we would say these two men went to the same church's prayer meeting. If, you, if you're familiar at all with kind of, I know we have a bit more of a, of a small group kind of midweek setup where we're in smaller pockets in certain homes. Um, but in, in other contexts, and perhaps you've participated in that, a church that has a bigger building, perhaps more going on at the building midweek in a parking lot and so on and so forth it goes, they have that midweek prayer service. And all the adults kind of come into the sanctuary area, they receive a prayer sheet on their way in, if you're familiar, and you sit down and you begin adding to that prayer sheet, and then you kind of break up into smaller pockets, you begin to pray. Or, as would be the case here, perhaps somebody would take a mic and stand up and begin to pray and everybody in the auditorium is listening, and then another person is raising their hand, they're praying, they're receiving the mic, and they're praying, and everyone's listening. You get the kind of picture. Here is the same kind of idea. These two men came into the same sanctuary, we could say, to offer prayers. And out of these two men, we're going to look at each one of them individually. That's the point. Consider yourself in these two character types. The first character we begin to hear from is the Pharisee. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple. Two men showed up at the same church to go through the prayer meeting. One of the character types, or one of the men at the church, is a Pharisee. And the other one that we're going to hear from at the same prayer meeting as we evaluate our own lives and listening to the words that spill out of the mouths of these two character types is a tax collector. Now, just to see the picture most clearly about who is the Pharisee, because immediately we jump in and we bag on the Pharisees, which is, is reasonable, very reasonable. If we read the whole accounts of the Gospels, we would see why it would be our call to kind of bag on the Pharisees. Nonetheless, if we step back and we receive much of what the Pharisees did was correct, Remember, just for brief rehearsal, we looked at this, uh, I don't know how many months back, at different points within Luke's gospel, but just by rehearsal. Remember, who is a Pharisee and what role did he serve in? So that we could get the whole picture of what it meant that this Pharisee came to the prayer meeting and stood up by himself and began to pray. What should we expect to come from his mouth? Remember, a Pharisee is highly esteemed among most of his fellow Jews. So when he's at the prayer meeting meeting, and he's getting ready to stand and pray, everybody's thinking, he's going to say the right things. He's the right kind of guy for this kind of moment. He's going to lead. Martin Luther makes a brilliant comment about what's going on here with the Pharisee. He says, quote, the name Pharisee, again, 
Jesus is speaking to some who are gathered, who are trusting in themselves. Not apart from him, not apart from the idea of God, but just a real good, uncritical review of themselves. And they find that in and of themselves, they feel rather righteous. And that righteousness moves them to contempt for others. So let me tell you the story about a Pharisee. What image would that invoke in the immediate hearer, Luther? Quote, the name Pharisee means the very first, most upright, and most pious of all people. The guy in the prayer meeting who should have the mic. He goes on, he says, with all earnestness, they endeavored to serve God, to keep the law, as St. Paul himself also boasts that before his conversion, he was one of them. Do you remember that? As to a Pharisee, I was the Pharisee. To the law, blameless. Paul's comments on his own pre-conversion life. So, who should have the mic? Probably the blameless guy. In fact, Matthew 23, I don't have time to go there, but if you were to look at Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3, and then follow through the passage, you'll see there, as we looked before, our Lord commends the teaching ministry of the Pharisees. And he expresses that much of what they teach you is correct. And he even characterizes them as those who, quote, sit on Moses' seat. What does that mean? Hey, guys, you should listen to them. The Pharisees, this guy who's coming in and standing by himself and getting ready to pray in Matthew 23. Hey, listen to them. They sit on Moses' seat. What does that mean? But he goes on to say, so practice and observe what they tell you. What are they telling you? The law. Practice it. Observe it. Listen to these guys. Now, look at this particular Pharisee, which would jive exactly with that commendation. You guys could track these people. You could track this particular guy. Look at his life. It's important that we grasp this, because many of us have this same review of ourselves. And that's the point. Yes, look at his example. For instance, look at verses 11 and 12. Our first character emerges here now with what we now have our ears kind of wetted to hear. The idea that, yeah, many people honored him. Many people thought he was the right kind of guy for the right kind of moment. So, so what am I going to expect Jesus to say next? He's in, I, I'm going to expect him to commend this man to me. I'm going to hear virtuous things about him. Of course it makes sense. All right, then let's hear. Let's, let, let's listen. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So, right, he's, he's in the prayer meeting. He raises his hand. Somebody's bringing around, handing him the microphone. He's standing up, and he's getting ready to speak. Everybody's ready to hear. Pray thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
Now, now, right there, so far, depending on what he means, so far, so good, kind of, right? He started out, God, I thank you. So, so, so in a measure, it seems quite straightforward. He's giving thanks to God. The text keeps going, that I am not like other men. You know, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I will remind you, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, again, be very careful as we evaluate his speech because it's a character type. You don't have to belong to the class of a Pharisee in order to be Pharisaical. A character type emerges in this kind of doublespeak. He thanks God at the very beginning of his prayer Thanks, God, for getting the ball rolling. And I'm quick to point out, there's two pieces I really want you to acknowledge. But honestly, his righteousness is obvious and quite virtuous as it stands on its own. Think about the first one. He points to the fact that he fasts twice a week, just to give you a little bit of a heads up just how much of a picture our Lord is painting here of this type of attitude. It's not like he does a little bit better than the guy next to him. Our Lord is embellishing just how, so that you would say, yes, that sounds right. Wow, he is something special. That is, he fasts twice a week because what would be required is far less in the prescribed fasting He fasts twice, which is far and above the law's requirement. I don't fast once a week. I don't fast, you know, on certain periods of time on the calendar. I fast, you know, twice a week. Look at his second piece. So so the the hearer is saying, yeah, that sounds right. Seems like he is a godly man. Look at the next portion that he boasts on. He draws attention to these efforts in his own scale. He says, I give tithes of... All that I get. So again, he isn't nitpicking on which produce has to be tithed upon. In following the law, analyzing, okay, this is harvested, this is coming in, this is going out. How much do I have to tithe on this? How much on this? How much on that? Well, I'm going to cut the church just exactly how much they need. He's like, look at me. I fast way above the prescribed amount. I give and tithe, not on a few items as required, but on all that I have. Right? He is the best donor the church has. To conclude with Luther's comment, Luther says, quote, he appears to the world 
a paragon of godliness, a fine, pious, God-fearing, and holy man who is to be publicly applauded as a mirror and an example for the entire world, end quote. Everyone at the prayer meeting would have thought the same things about him. He is the right guy. He does have it all together. He is our example. The worst part about it then, I guess, now we move from his sense of established righteousness, of which we're all moved by, were we to be seated there listening to his prayer. We're all sitting there, eyes closed, hearing him. He stands, he takes the mic. God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. You know, all the bad people. And that I give. And that I fast. And we're all sitting there thinking, yeah, he would be one of them. He is a Pharisee, we know that. He is the pillar of our community. So then we have to ask, what is his point of condemnation? If these things be true about him, what is his point of condemnation? The point of his condemnation is this. He substitutes God's saving actions for his own. Notice very carefully in the text as we move forward. He is substituting that which God does. He's pulling that out. And he is taking particularly his fasting and his tithing. And he is sliding them into that slot. Notice the text very carefully. Verse 11 again. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, the extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice that he is manically self-absorbed. Sure, I'm religious. God, thank you for being my co-pilot. Thanks for getting the ball rolling. I'll take it from here. No, I assent to the idea of theism. I assent to the fact that God probably did make things. I assent to the idea that his word kind of matters. I assent to the ideas of religious life. I even attend a church, or I attend services, or I go to prayer meetings. I connect with that. Thanks, God. But if I were to describe the ground 
for why I ought be accepted, I would have you note, I do fast twice a week. And I give tithes on all that I have. Do you see the difference? Do you see his evaluation of himself? It's uncritical. And it is self-absorbed. Just look briefly at how many eyes are in there before we move on to the tax collector in great contrast. Look at God, I thank you. Hey, you did a good thing. Let's give God a hand. That, I, right? I am not. I will have you know I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, all that I achieve. So you see, his point is that the grounds of his justification, why he thanks God, is because he's a good guy. I thank you that I am me. Do you see it? It's uncritical. It's unreflective. It's self-absorbed. It's grounded in his own performance. Sure, he gives token prayers. Who starts out their prayers without something but an introductory comment, some form of address? But it quickly moves right to himself. I'll have you note who I am. And hey, thanks for getting the ball rolling. I'll take it from here. This is the grounds. The, ser- the prayer would go much more like this. Dear God, thank you for allowing me to make myself better than everybody else. Proof, look at my tithing and look at my fasting regimen. You see, his pride and contempt for those who are less righteous than himself, exposes not a mere bad attitude. It exposes unbelief. You see, that is what Pharisaism is. It doesn't expose an unkind remark. It exposes a heart of unbelief. You might give token comment of address. God, thank you for being you. But really, thank you for letting me be me. You don't thank him for being him. It's not a naughty little attitude. It's a heart of absolute unbelief. The righteousness that you argue to God is claimed by examining your neighbor, of which is no righteousness at all. Think of humility just for a moment in this passage. What it means for each of us. Humility means having a proper view of ourselves. This is perhaps the worst aspect, right? Humility. Seeing ourselves as we really are. This is the call of humility. It is a means of knowing that every person has equal value. Every person has equal value. 
this is a mark of humility and a pharisaical type or character type cannot see equal value in his neighbor. All he sees in his neighbor is a way to self-reflect uncritically on how righteous he himself is. Therefore, the only response to your neighbor, to fellow believers, is contempt for what they lack and you have achieved. It exposes unbelief because, as Augustine said, commenting on Paul, faith works. How? How do you have evidence and confidence in your faith? How does it work? Through love. That's the evidence of, of vital faith connected to the vine. Not contempt as its fruit, but love as its fruit. Every person has equal value. Notice a stark contrast then in the lack of humility by the publican or the tax collector as we kind of conclude our time together with the second person of the passage. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off. Do you see the contrast of positioning even as our Lord describes them in verse 11? Notice the tax collector at the prayer meeting. He stands up by himself. He's ready to roll. Again, upon what grounds of confidence? Where does the confidence come from to act that way, to be so self-assertive? Well, because of self-established righteousness. He's uncritically revealing himself. Hey, pass it over here. I'll take it. I'm ready to roll. Standing by himself, but the tax collector, look at how it's even described in his positioning. He's standing far off. So he's in the prayer meeting, and he's kind of wondering why he even came. And then it further describes him as he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat upon his breast. Now, now why do you think he had that response? If you look carefully at the passage, it seems to be that he heard the Pharisee describing him. And he knew it was true. And he began to admit it and beat upon his own chest. I am unlike him. Because he can't turn and say, hang on a second. I know you're trying to talk about me and I won't have any of it. Here's the evidences in my life. You, you, you want to square off on who has more righteousness? I'm ready. No, he knows he has no grounds to argue. And he's ashamed. Look at how he's been described within earshot of himself. And how do we know that it's within earshot at daily prayers? Because the comment the Pharisee gives is, and even this tax collector. The tax collector could hear the comment just as much as the Pharisee could point him out. Read then what the tax collector was hearing. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Remember, the, the, the Pharisee or the tax collector, where is he right now? He's standing far off, but he's in proximity. 
because the Pharisee says thus, God, I thank you that I am not like any other man. Manically self-absorbed. There is not a man out there that's like me. And then look at the laundry, look at the laundry list of what he says. Extortioners, extortioners, unjust. What would you label a person who takes money from other people on behalf of the Romans and always collects more and lies and deceives in order to take home his own share? Living high on the hog, as they say, off the backs of fellow Jews. What would you call him? Unjust? What are his practices? Extortion? The tax collector is despised by everybody. You see, it's not an idea that he might do these things. He is this person. So, so I just keep with it. So, so I'm not like anybody else here. Thank you. You've done a fine job. I'm not like an extortioner, that guy over there. Unjust, most likely, could we say he is perhaps even an adulterer? We don't know. But he lumps in these vices and he says, or even as a crescendoed effect, just in case he didn't know he's being singled out, like this tax collector. And the tax collector hearing, I am an extortioner. That is what I do by profession. I am unjust to my neighbor. I am an adulterer, as every man and woman are in their heart. I am a tax collector, being unjust. After hearing it, the tax collector standing far off would not lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat upon his breast, saying, God, both prayers begin the same way, don't they? The religious type and the person of honesty. Both prayers of direct address begin pretty good. God, the heart of sincerity pleads, doesn't present, but they plead, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see, God, I thank you that I'm who I am. God, be merciful to me. I am vile and filled with every kind of wickedness, both in my heart and my imaginations and in my outward actions. I am the person that guy just described. And I cannot bring anything before you to ask for forgiveness and righteousness. I plead with you. With no case do I bring. I just ask, might you show yourself to me merciful? And the comment of the text is clear. It's very straightforward for each of us. What became of these two men? at the prayer meeting. What were their outcomes? 
How do I become justified? You have to ask, right? You, you have to ask. If you were asked right now, let, let's say that kind of um, picture that people paint often does exist right now, just for the sake of argument. You appear before the pearly gates. Let's say you do. You leave here and you get killed. Let's say in two hours from now, something tragic is going to happen to someone here, maybe you, you die two hours from now. And you appear before the pearly gates, as it were. And you are asked, why should I let you into heaven? Again, that's not how it's going to go down, actually. But what if it did? What would you say? And don't say something cliche. In your own heart, in your own mind, being honest. What would you as a confessing Christian plead? What just came into your mind? Right now, what just came into your mind as the grounds for what you would argue to receive access? What is the grounds that you're relying on? It can only be one thing. It cannot be any form of righteousness that you bring emotionally, psychologically, physically, externally, something you would plead. Not your fasting twice a week and not your giving tithes on all that you have. Not on your church attendance or your great sense of Bible reading. It can only be one plea. The object of your faith alone has to be Christ. And nothing else do you bring. Why should you be let in? Because Christ died for me. He is the sole object of my faith. I have faith in him and faith alone. Full stop. Not... I thank you, God, for making me good. And I would also plead this argument. No, my argument is God be merciful to me as a sole object of my faith. Nothing to thy cross I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling, nothing. Final comment of the text. I tell you this. This man went down to his house justified, forgiven, sharing in a righteousness that is foreign to him, not one that he established on his fasting and his tithe giving, but a foreign given justification. I tell you, this man, the man who admitted his own sin, who had an honest view of his own sense of wickedness and vileness, who pled not for righteousness, but for mercy, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified after that prayer meeting. And in great contrast, not the first man. For everyone who exalts himself, you know, like every person of this character type, will be humbled. 
no one escapes. If you plead your own righteousness, there is no escape. But the one who humbles himself, emptying himself, recognize everyone is of equal value. Simply to that cross do I cling. They will be exalted. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of being justified through faith.